Elise Stoltz Dickerson was a very driven little child, a tomboy who struggled through her early schooling with undiagnosed dyslexia. Eventually, she found her way into graphic design, retail, and healthcare before co-founding Eosera, where she's CEO. The company's first big break was a little bigger than she wanted. When CVS offered her a 10-minute meeting, she planned to boldly ask them to try Eosera's earwax remover in 2,000 stores. Instead, CVS ordered it for 8,000 stores, and the race was on to keep up with demand. Elise is still very driven, competing in marathons, triathlons, and Ironman competitions. Eosera is a part of the conscious capitalism movement that puts purpose before profits. And Elise enjoys audiobooks, including Humor Seriously and How Remarkable Women Lead. I'm your host, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. If your healthcare or life sciences company needs strategy consulting support, please contact me, dwilliams at healthbusinessgroup.com. Elise, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. How are you today? Good. Thank you. Excited to be here. Listen, we're going to talk a lot about what you're doing now and, and the outlook for the future, but I want to start and kind of rewind the clock back to childhood and, and what was your what was your childhood like? What were your what were your early influences? What was your upbringing like? Sure. So I was raised in Fort Worth, Texas. I have one brother and uh, two parents, and we were kind of the Beaver Cleaver family. Um, I was the quintessential tomboy, so found most of my friends and I would say confidence in uh, sports at a very early age. I was usually the only pigtailed girl on the soccer field with with all the boys. Um, and then I was also a dyslexic child, um, but I wasn't diagnosed until about third grade. So I really struggled with reading and vocabulary through first through really all of elementary school. Um, and it, in a way, kind of scarred me uh, in in thinking that I was not as intelligent uh, as some of my peers. Got it. So not like not a bad upbringing, but not a mellow upbringing uh, either. Yeah, very driven little child. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you get along with your brother? I have two brothers, so that change over time, or? So yeah, no, he didn't really like me that much. I got beat yeah. up a lot, but we love each other now, so that's Good. important. Good. Excellent. Excellent. So then after that, then you went on to school, but then you majored in, in design. So what yeah, was that so about? I went to the University of Notre Dame and really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, was pretty intimidated by some of the more difficult degrees, but I loved, I was very creative and loved um, making things and, and being creative. And so graphic design seemed like a nice path for me. And in retrospect, it's ended up having a lot of value in, in the work I do every day. But now you were intimidated by some of those degrees, but somehow you got in and out in three years with your degree. So what yeah, was that about? <laughs> yeah. So see, you know, those stories you tell yourself uh, that you're not good enough. Yeah. Um, make up for in other ways. Got it. Now you started off after that in, in, in retail, I think in more of a kind of traditional merchandising uh, role, maybe with, with Penny, but then, and then moving on to Neiman Marcus and, and less of a traditional kind of a role. So how, how did things get, get rolling from there? Um, so yeah, I started in retail. I loved fashion um, and, and design. And so it was a kind of a natural transition. I lived in Chicago and then pretty quickly figured out retail wasn't where I wanted to spend my entire career. So I went back to business school and 
had no idea what I was going to do with a business degree, but I thought, you know, maybe something outside of retail. <laughs> but sure. the only company that would recruit me out of business school was Neiman Marcus because uh, they were creating an online store back then. This was in early 2000 and nobody could imagine buying something online. No kidding. Um, yeah. But, but we were hired to, to figure it out. And did, did uh, you know, a lot of these retailers sort of went to, that was the, when they're talking about the old uh, clicks and mortar and that kind, that kind of thing, did they, did they continue down that path or did they, did they switch course a few times in between then and now? Switch course many times uh, because really back then it was so different than what we experience now or, you know, and this was high-end merchandise. So you're talking right. about, you know, $2,000 pair of shoes and so just even the way it was displayed or presented to the consumers was was very different. So then, you know, on to kind of like a big company, now into healthcare, now into my world here. So good run at Alcon. So that now makes sense because you didn't go to business school to go back into uh, retail. But then how did you get to Alcon? So there was a job opening and a friend from business school had gotten a job there as a product manager, which was in the commercial side of the business launching products, running brands. And there was a, there was a job opening and she called me up and said, you should apply. And so I applied and happened to get the job. And then the rest was history. I was there 13 years. Great. How long did your friend last? She's still there. No kidding. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I think she left and then went back. Yeah. And what was your path like uh, there? What was that like? So I was always in the commercial organization, started off what I'd call in traditional marketing, uh, worked my way up there. And then the last five years I spent as a global director. And in that role, I was traveling around the world, uh, launching brands, because every healthcare system around the world is different and you know requirements to, to launch products or market products is different. Um, so it was a really great way to learn the global healthcare market. And then in 2015 was kindly asked to leave. Nice. Now when they, now the thing with a big company, if you've been there for a while and are kindly asked to leave, usually they give you a little something on the way out to let you help to launch your new venture. Sometimes. <laughs> okay, Can't we'll say that, that happened. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fair enough. Nonetheless, uh, you made the move to entrepreneurship uh, right around that time. So had you been thinking about entrepreneurship right up to that point or was it sort of a sudden, okay, you're at Alcon, you're going to be a lifer and then you weren't? I was definitely going to be a lifer. Um, I had started about two years before I had started investing and mentoring uh, healthcare startups in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And what I learned through that process is how much I actually knew. And I think often we don't give ourselves credit for what we know because we're doing it every day and it just seems like nothing remarkable. Yeah. But when I got into this startup environment, I realized how much value I could actually bring. And so it kind of planted a seed that, you know, you probably have what it takes to start your own if you ever want to. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. And then... So that's sort of like in general entrepreneurship and, and healthcare, but why, you know, why this particular focus and how did you come at it? Because there's a million and, uh, you know, a million and one things that you could have done, but this is a specific one. Yeah. So my business partner and I both, he spent 15 years at Alcon in R&D. And when we left, we had a bunch of different ideas, but we uh, believed that we needed to let the market tell us uh, where the, the true gap was. And so we spent the first three months 
just talking to doctors, any doctor that would take a breakfast, lunch, dinner, coffee. And we just asked a series of questions, sort of like market research. And earwax impaction was a um, disease state, if you call it a disease state, that kept rising to the top where the doctors would say, I have millions of people coming in to get earwax removed and there's nothing good uh, for them to use on their own. If you can solve this problem, you'll be our hero. So we spent the next nine months in the lab focused on one endpoint, and that was earwax and how to dissolve it. And about nine months later, we came out of the lab with um, a product that seemed to work across the board on all different types of earwax. And then it was time to decide, are we going to, you know, make a company out of this or, you know, are we going to give up? Yeah. So I know you didn't give up. So, so what's the, so what's the development path for a product like that? So we spent a lot of time reading patents and medical literature, trying to understand the composition of earwax. And then once you understand what it's actually made of, because it's not wax like a wax candle. Yeah. Then we started tinkering with, okay, how, how can you break down these lipids and these proteins that are in the wax? And we use that. We're not set on a pathway to market. So we weren't sure if this was going to be a, a reimbursable prescription or if this was going to be, you know, an over-the-counter product. We just wanted something that worked. Right. And at the end of the day, it was a very safe and effective product that was allowable over the counter. And so it was the fastest way to market because, you know, you've got to sell it into a retailer, but you don't have to go through all the reimbursement issues and that kind of thing. Right. No, that sounds good. So were you surprised? I mean, would you have given that a chance before? I mean, that's definitely about listening to what the customers are asking for, because it's not an obvious one at all. No, it's not obvious. But I'll tell you, some of the brands that I ran for Alcon um, were, they were all eye care. And some of them were over the counter. And so when you look at, when you go in a drugstore, any store, eye care and ear care is all on the same shelf. Mm -hmm. And so I was always aware that there was just not much available for ear care. And so again, sort of planted a seed in the back of my mind that there's probably an opportunity there because there's no one manufacturer focused on growing ear care. Got it. So how did you get into the retail channel? I'm assuming <laughs> that you're in there. What's, what's involved with that? You hear these stories about... You know, people like taking their wares around from store to store and have the manager try one and all that. But what is that? How does that done in the late, uh, you know, this time in the century? So that still happens. But I was really fortunate that I was able to get in touch with the buyer at CVS and he offered me a 10 minute meeting. Okay. Nice. So I was nobody, right? So right. 10 minutes was like, I don't have time for you, but I'll listen to you for 10 minutes. Yeah. So I flew to Florida met him in this hotel lobby conference room and, and I had 10 minutes. And so in eight minutes, I gave him my sh pitch. In the last two minutes, I said, I'd love for you to try this product in 2000 stores Yeah, and let's just see how it does. And he looked at me and he said, nope, I love it. I want it in all 8,000 stores <laughs> and I need it by essentially like three or four months from now. Yeah. And so I walked out of that meeting and was in a complete panic because we had no manufacturer, we had no finished product <laughs> and we just had, you know, a massive order. Yeah. So you, you learn to scale really quick. Yeah. 
No kidding. Now I wonder, so at that rate, if this guy's having that type of a day, you know, if he's having six, let's just say six meetings an hour, yeah. you know, 50 products a day that he's bringing in there. So I assume it's not, uh, that's probably not the outcome of most of these 10 minute meetings. It is not. And most people get 30. Yeah. Okay. Ever since that meeting, I've gotten 30 minute meetings. <laughs> nice. Now you know you've really arrived. Exactly. So, all right. So obviously you, you managed somehow to, to deal with it from there. Yes, we had a contract manufacturer when we started to help us produce the first 80,000 units and and quickly learned we didn't want to work with the contract manufacturer because we couldn't control quality or price or timing. Yeah. And so that led us then to bring manufacturing in-house and learn a whole other side of the business uh, pretty quickly. And so so that was the first product. Now, is that the only product or do you, you, have, uh, you have more products uh, on the market or in the pipeline? How do you think about that? So we have seven products on the shelf at CVS now. We're in 13,000 stores now. So we're in other major retailers. Yeah. And then we are also now launching into the nasal category, uh, which is adjacent. You think of ear, nose, and throat. Yep. Um, but we, with our lineup of ear care, we've really maximized um, every possible need that a consumer could have that can be addressed over the counter. We have yeah. now delivered that. Got it. And so, you know, that, that first decision you made about it being an OTC product versus a prescription product turned out to have a lot of impact in terms of where, where you went, because you're not going to have one OTC product and then probably do a prescription product next. That wouldn't make sense. Exactly. And there's been this trend, as I'm sure you're aware of, over the last, let's say, five to seven years of self-care. Right. People leaving the doctor's offices don't want to go to their doctor. Um and they're looking for ways to to treat their problems. And so we we entered the market at a perfect time that people were walking to the shelf and looking for earwax or ear pain or ear itch products. Yeah, I think it's inherently um, a good move with the times because it's just less expensive, uh, you know, for the consumer not to have to go through the physician and then have the whole prescription process and and so on. And then if they have their flexible spending account or their health savings account or whatever, then they can, you know, still take advantage of getting some kind of a reimbursement. Exactly. So you said uh, ear and uh, nasal is next. So what kind what kind of nasal products? I thought all the nasal needs were solved. So have you ever used a neti pot? I have not used it, but I know what it is. Yes. Okay. So it's like that little teapot, you know, you try to pour into one uh, nostril and it comes out the other nostril. We've come out with a gravity fed uh, neti pot nasal rinsing device that's really easy to use. You essentially just hold it right up to your face. Um, the water easily flows through. So it's it's about convenience um, and, and it's just cool looking. Again, good branding. It, it's amazing how many healthcare brands are out there that just have terrible branding. Yeah. And, and these are still consumers, right? They, they're still looking at the packaging and looking for something that's clever and fun and that suits their needs. And so- how do you think about you know getting beyond getting the ten minutes and making them the best uh, use of it? How do you get people actually interested in the in the products? And it, are the healthcare professionals involved uh, in in some way? Because you said it was physicians in the first place that were saying that there was there was a need. But like, who are the influencers? How do how do you actually get people to use the product and keep using it? So it's two prong. Um, healthcare professionals are a huge influencer for us. We actually have a lot of healthcare professionals that sell our product out of their offices. Um, so they buy it wholesale and then resell it. They also um, 
we, we give a lot of patient brochures and like couponing things that doctors then hand to their patients. So they're a big driver, but consumers are again, going to the shelf and looking for themselves. And because there's no other manufacturer uh, really in the game, they walk to the shelf and they're going to see Eosera products. And so we've gotten a lot of business or at least first time business just because somebody walked up to the shelf. Right. That's a good way to do it. It's great. I mean, and we're really lucky because most categories, it's not wide open like that. No, no. So if you're too successful, you're going to force some of those Alcon products off the shelves. So there won't be room for both. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that secondary objective. So Elise, you explained, you know, first having this idea and then actually having to do the development and then the manufacturing. So all of this, you know, costs money. Well, how, how has the company been financed? Yeah, sure. So um, Joe and I financed the first year out of our savings. Um, and so I tell all aspiring entrepreneurs, like, you know, save your money. Um, and you never know when you're going to need it and really want it to make a difference in your life. And so uh, both of us had done that. So that was helpful. Um, and then when we came out of the lab with this prototype, uh, essentially test tube data, um, there was a business pitch competition in Dallas that was sponsored by Comerica Bank and the Dallas Entrepreneur Center. And it was a $50,000 prize. And I, this goes back to the childhood, you know, determination in me, I was going to win it. Yeah. And um, lo and behold, we won it. And so that first $50,000 w- allowed us to run a clinical trial and gave us some press because we had won this, you know, won this competition. And so then I had really investors starting to call asking if I was raising money. And it's funny to think back now, but when these investors would call, I would say, I don't know if I'm raising money or not, because I had never done it. Right. Right. I had invested, but I had never collected money. So Mm -hmm. we did uh, two rounds of financing from angel investors. um, And we raised 1.2 million in the first round and another million in the second round. And then we've been profitable uh, 18 months after we started selling our first product, we were profitable. And so we've been able to finance the growth all organically now. Great. Well, that's the way to go. Now, now the people can call and you'll tell them, no, you're not raising money. Right. That's right. We, and, and all the people that, you know, didn't want to put in at the beginning now want to put in. Sure. Like, well, a little late. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You got to get you, you got to get your chance. So that's good. Now, at least you're from Fort Worth or back there now. Uh, you, you mentioned that competition. You've won some other recognition in Fort Worth as well. What's the business environment uh, like there in Fort Worth? It is thriving. And I will say, especially for the small entrepreneur or startup, I mean, they're not all small anymore, but it's a great environment for innovation. There's uh, Tech Fort Worth, which is an incubator that helps uh, build companies up and gives them access to shared office space and mentors and really even investors. And then there's a lot of people that actually left Alcon that have started biotech type companies. Some have sold at huge, huge multiples. And so it's really, it's been really cool to see the support that the the community has provided. Now, I was noticing on your website, there's some talk about something called uh, conscious capitalism, capital C, capital C. What's, What's that about? So I am a capitalist through and through. However, I have seen and experienced what I would say some of the worst of capitalism where it is money at any expense and it's grow or die and it's 
you know, this mindset that people don't matter. You're just a number to me. And I felt like there had to be something different out there. And conscious capitalism is this movement that essentially believes that you have some sort of purpose higher than profits. And if you follow that purpose, the money comes. And so we put, we put people at the center of everything we do. And whether it's our employees, our investors, uh, any stakeholder that we're involved with, we think about how our decisions are going to impact them. And it makes running a company actually really easy because I'm not, sometimes I have to make decisions that financially aren't actually the best, um, but it's the best for the long-term outlook of the company um, and the health of the company when I put people at the center of the, the thought process. Well, great. You know, so this last year has been a, a challenge for a lot of a lot of people. And, you know, you talk about being on the shelves at, at CVS, but the normal retail patterns have been disrupted to, to a fair amount. Thinking back to your Neiman Marcus days, maybe. What has that been like in terms of uh, trajectory of the, of the company, uh, your distribution, type of, type of uh, products you're making, people management? What's, what's been the adjustment? So we had some initial first adjustment just in our the way we manufacture products and how we schedule employees and you know more like rotating schedules rather than everybody taking breaks at the same time and that kind of thing. We've also had, we import from China, uh, most of our bottles and caps, really anything plastic. Right. Just, you just can't compete with uh, what China can produce. And so we, we saw a lot of delays in at the ports. Um, now we're suffering, you know, huge tariffs and duties to bring anything in and we can't pivot fast enough. You know, I've contacted all sorts of other countries trying to find production and you just, it doesn't happen like that. You know, yeah. I, need, I need 10 years to plan that out. Right. Not, you know, two months. Ten, ten, I was going to say 10 minutes back to your old uh, time frame. Exactly. And so we get hit with, you know, 25, almost 30% on top of what we had forecasted uh, to spend on all this, all these components. So um, it's, we've had to pivot this year and, but the good news is business has continued to grow. Are the, uh, are the sort of the underlying conditions affected by uh, people uh, working from home or anything like that? Or is it more or less just sort of steady or does it does any change like people putting their headphones on to get more earwax or what happens? That's exactly right. So any, anytime you stick something in your ear canal, so AirPods and earbuds are like our best friend because yeah. they just help produce and pump out wax into those ear canals. Yeah. And so we've seen a rise and we've actually launched another product that uh, was for earbud cleaning. Nice. Uh, and so that was an add on product that's now available in our lineup. And, and it was, you know, just a function of every kid in America was now doing zoom on school with earbuds in and, and every, you know, parent was as well. Right. <laughs> yeah. Good. So I was just, I was just guessing, I, I was just sort of making that up, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear it's been a boost for the, for the business. <laughs> I guess next year when people start growing a third year or something like that, then that'll really, that'll really boost it. <laughs> exactly. How about for the nose? Any, any nose changes from, uh, from, from the pandemic? No, sadly, because everybody's been wearing masks. 
Yeah. You know, nobody's getting sick or, or allergies right. or so we need, we need the mask to come off okay. to for the nasal business. So, okay. Well, the timing, <laughs> the timing may be good because the masks may be coming off, but the, uh, the earbuds are staying in. Right. Uh, so, uh, things are, things are good as long as we can get the, uh, you know, foreign policy and tariffs taken care of and supply chain, you'll be all, you'll be all set. Yeah. If you can handle that for me in the next 10 minutes, that'd be great. I'll let you, I'll let you know what we can do. <laughs> Now, it, you probably don't have a ton of time for uh, reading with all that you're you're busy with, and if I don't, you know, going back to the early comments on uh, you know overcoming dyslexia. But what do you what do you do for reading? Any any books uh, of interest and anything you recommend? Yeah, so I'm always reading, um, and sometimes, actually, probably more often than not, I I do audiobooks because I can consume them much faster. Mm-hmm. Um, but one that I did read in hardcover, uh, humor seriously is recently out and it just talks about the value of humor in the workplace. Um, and it, it is fantastic. And then another one of my favorites is how remarkable women lead. Um, and it's a little older, but it's, it's one that I recommend really to women and men just to understand sort of the difference in leadership styles and, and, um, you know, how, how women can really make a difference in the business environment. Great. Those sound like two good recommendations. You're not the first CEO that I've spoken with that uh, likes primarily audio uh, books, actually. So uh, you won't be the you won't you won't be the first or the last there. Those, but those are two books that I have not heard before. So we'll add good. to my my reading list. Good, absolutely great. Well, Elise Stoltz Dickerson, CEO and founder of Eosera, it has been a real pleasure speaking with you uh, today, and I wish you the best of, of continued success in your business. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.